hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 60, How Do Apple Cider Vinegar and Kombucha Work? Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. back. Yeah, it's uh, been a while since Michael and I have been uh, behind the microphones. Uh, Our schedule has been, well, as the listener, you're probably familiar with our irregular schedule, but for us, it's been more than irregular. I moved and Michael's been busy building things and doing stuff online and all kinds of great and wonderful things. Yep. Uh, Lots of things happening here. Fusion Health Radio, uh, this is the uh, episode where Michael and I sit down and we talk about things related to um, health, diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mindset, all kinds of good, wonderful things. Uh, today we're talking about uh, apple cider vinegar and kombucha. And when Michael presented that idea to me, I went, good, I got something to say about both of them. <laughs> Bring it on, brother. What do you got? Yeah. Well, um, apple cider vinegar is a uh, silver bullet in my health uh, regime. I'll, I'll say it that way. And uh, I mean, we can get into that once we get into the whole idea of what we're talking about. Uh, and kombucha is something that um, I've had good, bad, and ugly experience with as well. So, um, you said you wanted to talk about how these things work. Um, and I guess somewhere in my mind, I'm kind of thinking as a listener, do they work? And I have a belief they do. And I'm curious to see if you think the same way. Do you? I think they do in, in a lot of ways. And we're going to get into, uh, definitely a bit of a geek out because there's a lot of, uh, ways in which the compounds inside these products actually affect uh, different parts of physiology. So it's really cool. Uh, especially for those of us who really like the geek out part of fusion health radio. <laughs> um, but I would want to preface it by saying, yeah, they do work, but there's always going to be that good, bad and ugly thing. Cause there's always going to be people that are going to have a very adverse reaction, especially to certain kinds of kombucha or too much of the vinegars or using them for too long. So they do have a potential silver bullet in, in the sense that they can really move things around. But like any bullet, uh, if you point it at the wrong thing or you use it too many times in a row, it's going to do probably more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I think apple cider vinegar is something that uh, I've seen forever, um, long before I ever really became more smarter. <laughs> I'll use those words around uh, diet and nutrition. It was something I remember seeing um uh, Bragg's, uh, apple cider vinegar. Um, and the, that book, the, that he wrote all about, uh, the miracle cure that is apple cider vinegar, that sort of stuff. And I can always remember it being kind of in the back of my mind, whenever I saw that sort of thing as being like, yeah, yeah, right. Sure. Vinegar. Yeah. You know, I'm going to clean my windows with that. I'm not going to put it in my gut. Um, but then once I figured out that that was something that could help me, I was totally transformed in my thinking. Um, my, my point with all that is that I think apple cider vinegar has been around a very, very long time. Do you have any sort of history on that sort of thing? Well, I would say before I dig into the history a bit, I just want to like say it's been my experience too as a, as an educator, as a clinician, but also as just a person in, in the world looking at, you know, what you see in advertising or in health food stores. And now obviously with the internet, I mean, apple cider vinegar, kombucha, a lot of those, uh, kind of used to be grandma folk kitchen ferments that people would just do all the time. Um, I mean, they're espoused to do everything from the common cold to treat dandruff by rubbing it on your hair for, 
um, things like cancer. I mean, everything. Like there's people saying, you just need to, you know, do this every day and you'll get better. And when we get into the science, you'll see why it can actually help a lot of stuff. Although in the context of a bullet, it's a really small bullet that you have to use in a really small amount every day. Because mm-hmm. if you do too much, it's going to hurt you. Well, when I refer to sofa bullet is, um, uh, for me, uh, apple cider vinegar was sort of the last resort, you know, like the, the, the one thing that was actually going to fix whatever that was, that was actually broken. And again, I'm not going to tell you what that is, but I'm going to get into that once we get into it. So. Okay. So with respect to history, uh, vinegar, which is essentially a fermented version of alcohol, uh, has been used around the world for as long as we've figured out how to make it. Uh, from topical use to disinfection to rashes, especially with little kids, um, as an aging tonic, as a digestive tonic. A lot of people know that if you take a little shot of vinegar and water, you know, 20 minutes before a meal, you're probably going to digest the meal better. And we'll get into that too. But this stuff has been used all over the world uh, forever. And I wanted to start this off just for fun with um, a Chinese medicine sense of what vinegar is going to do. Because Chinese medicine, you know, going back as far as it does, uh, attribute certain medical benefits or therapeutic benefits to something as simple as the flavor, because that's the thing that's consistent. So you look at, say, kombucha, vinegar, uh, certain plants, you know, certain fermented fruits and things, they're all very, very sour. And, you know, in Chinese medicine, the sour flavor is said to direct things to your liver. Mm-hmm. Now... It's very hard for anyone who's very deeply invested in Chinese medicine to talk about it in English without kind of making funny facial expressions. So luckily no one can see my face doing all these corkscrew movements of like, that's not really what you mean, but it's the best you can say in English. And uh, we will come into the physiology of um, how this actually can change what your liver does. I just think that that's a, a great place to start with a historical sense is Chinese medicine's ideas. Well, if you have a herbal formula that's used for this and this and this, and you want to just sort of tweak it towards your liver without adding too many other herbs or something that might be really strong, you would literally just put like a teaspoon of vinegar in your herbal tea. And, you know, again, from the back in the day version of the understanding is now we just know somehow because it's sour, it's going to be more effective for your liver. Hmm. And before you, before you go on with that, let me just ask you a quick question. So, um, We're talking about apple cider vinegar, but you're talking about vinegar in general, right? Well, back in the day, the only kind of vinegar you would have would be overly fermented, fermented stuff like, you know, fermented wines or fermented uh, ciders, stuff like that. Right. And, and so, um, just for the the sake of, uh, this history lesson, part of the podcast, you're talking about vinegar in general, which is. I'm going to talk about the compounds inside of vinegar, which are overwhelmingly the same, no matter what. Now I understand. And okay. You just said it right there. No matter what. I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, somewhere in my mind, I've got this ax to grind around plain old white vinegar, you know, the kind of stuff that you see sometimes served on French fries at least in Canada anyways. Mm. <laughs> and is there a distinction between that and I guess the healthier version that I think is healthier, apple cider vinegar? Yes, there's a difference. And at the same time, no, there's at a certain point of reduction, they are the same thing, but at a certain other point of perspective, they're completely different. So we're going to have to get into this like layer by layer because okay, okay. there, there are some details, but I, I love the fact that when I have this kind of conversation with people, it's like the, the whole world divides, like, is it Moses who divided some water at some point or something? It's like everyone on the, hey man, it's special organic magic juice. So it's got to be better than anything else. Then you have the people on the other side of it in lab coats all going, dude, come on, it's all the same compound. 
They're just saying, hey, it's just Windex. <laughs> However, but I mean, they're both right, which is, I think, the funnest part of this okay. uh, conversation with people because we're allowed to actually both be right. Right. And then the difference is actually really potent and unique. Okay. So we're going to get into that. I'm really glad you brought it up because that's like the fun part, eh? <laughs> yeah. So another uh, thing that Chinese medicine would attribute to vinegar in general is what we would call uh, regulating the spleen qi or the circulation of everything that has to do with digestion, um, especially with respect to what we call dampness. And that, you know, unless you're deep into Chinese medicine, basically means how well you handle carbohydrate digestion uh, in the sense of insulin and, and all of that. Uh, and it's also, from a Chinese medicine point of view, uh, it's attributed to help with uh, certain aspects of pain um, and to help support the repair and, and rebuilding of your tendons and bones. So apple cider vinegar, if you looked in uh, an ancient textbook, that, that that's what they would say is, you know, it helps move uh, stagnation out of your liver. It helps tonify the circulation of your digestive system, uh, specifically around starches. And, uh, it can, in, in that system of medicine, you know, help you repair yourself and, uh, we'll see why scientifically in a bit. So, uh, from a Chinese medicine point of view, when you look at kombucha, it's interesting that it does the same things, although it's considered to dry dampness. So instead of tonifying or speeding up in a way, your ability to handle carbohydrate load, uh, it's actually considered to repair a certain amount of the damage, especially if you're getting diarrhea, uh, cause that's when you say drying dampness, you're like, okay, we want to keep the, the liquid part of you in you. Kombucha is also attributed to relieve rashes, not just as a topical thing or as a suppository thing, although those are, uh, uh, recommended historically using it orally would uh, have that uh, effect as well. Uh, it can also help relieve hemorrhoids. And, um, if I have this right, it can reduce anxiety and produce a certain kind of dreaming. Hmm. So and so, sorry, just to be clear, you're saying if you drink kombucha, mm -hmm. you'll get those results. If you use kombucha therapeutically, medically, specifically with your constitution and condition, I would say that's the idea. But to just say blatantly, yeah, just guzzle the stuff, you'll be better, not right. quite so much. Okay, so that's two different things. But let, let me just be clear that you're saying that this is something that somebody would want to uh, ingest, not necessarily if they've got hemorrhoids. I'm just picturing people out there with their bottles of kombucha doing all kinds of creative things with that substance. <laughs> How do uh, I get it on there, Martha? Well, you'd be creative, uh, but ideally it would be to take about, let's just say about a half a glass, nice little half a glass of uh, kombucha a day. Daily, yeah. A daily. But if you start getting into three glasses a day or one glass a week or something like that, the overall benefit may actually turn out to go badly instead of well. Hmm. I, um, I've got a friend who buys the... Uh, I think it's a liter and a half, whatever that works out to an American uh, size bottle, like really big bottle mm -hmm. of kombucha. It's like a tank. It's a big glass bottle. You remember yep. those glass bottles that we used to have for soda way back in the day? The ones that would fall off the top shelf and then they plasticize them because I they were think blowing so. up. I, I can picture the giant kombucha bottles in the yeah, local yeah. oil store. Anyways, <laughs> and, and he just, you know, downs that stuff like it's water. And I'm like, dude, you know, that's not just water, eh? He's like, oh, it's good for you. I'm like... Yeah, but I think the good for you is, you know, in moderation. Yeah, we're going to do a special part somewhere in the middle of this conversation as to where doing that is actually really, really dangerous. Okay. So we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, good. One thing that is worth bringing up just as we get into the conversation though, because when I uh, sat down to make sure we were going to do a good job and research all this stuff, 
uh, I looked into where kombucha was actually kind of like, you know, initially made as a medicine and it came from Manchuria. Hmm. And it actually became famous uh, when there was this, I can't remember what his background was, but he was a Japanese clinician, well, if you could call it that, in 400 AD, who had been going back and forth, I guess, to China to study what they were doing for medicine. And he brought some kombucha back. Well, his name was Dr. Kombu, and cha is the word for tea. So kombucha means the tea from this guy, Dr. Kombu. Hmm. And he saved the emperor. Uh, he saved the, the emperor of Japan um, from some serious digestive dysentery or something with this strange tea from China that became named after him. So just if anyone's wanting to have that little, you know, shiver of geek out pride, I know where kombucha comes from. <laughs> well, that's where it comes from. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's fun, fun to randomly come across details like that where you're like, never would have put that together, but that's cool. Hmm. Well, I'm sure that the, uh, Mr. Kombu or Dr. Kombu or whatever he was referred to as, Master Kombu, uh, might've been a little offended when he sees all the different varieties of kombucha and stuff that are actually on the shelves today. Cause uh, I get that, you know, I've seen stuff that actually has like, um, I don't know, like lavender and it, it just sounds like, Hey, let's just put a pretty purple label on this and put some fancy flowers in it and maybe it'll sell more cause it's good for you. Right? Yeah. That sounds like half of the stuff on shelves now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is interesting also when I was looking at the history of this, that it is used in, has been used in various forms, uh, around the world in different ways. And it really kind of fell out of favor as a normal kitchen uh, thing to do, uh, especially in fall during World War II, when all of the restrictions on the use of sugar came in, mm. right? Because people were like, what are we going to do? You know, make this crazy tea that might help people out with our tiny little, you know, uh, allocation of sugar, or are we going to do something else? So uh, it became kind of a folk healer thing. And, and then it wasn't until, you know, after the war that, you know, society stabilized again. And then it was kind of this thing that these old crazy gypsy ladies knew about instead of, you know, everybody's grandma had a, you know, thing in the back of the counter waiting to help people out. So it, uh, it has a really interesting history and it was used by almost everybody for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Neat. Yep. So if we look at, say, apple cider vinegar to begin the conversation about what's really going on in there, obviously apple cider vinegar is fermented apple cider. So you get the ferment of uh, alcohol into what's called acetic acid. And acetic acid is, again, in every kind of vinegar. It's just whether or not it's actually produced in the normal process of fermenting alcohol, or if you're just using a specific kind of bacteria to force acetic acid into the world. And all of the cofactors that are around that process that are inside of apple cider vinegar, which we often refer to as the mother, this kind of creepy alien thing that's hanging out in there, <laughs> all of the ecology and the chemistry that surrounds that particular formation and binding of, of acetic acid to that, say, 5% of uh, the dilution of um, apple cider vinegar is, you know, what makes it actually really powerful. So when you look at what uh, is going on, there's going to be that acetic acid, there's going to be some probiotic uh, bacteria, and there's going to be a couple of enzymes that actually have their own unique potential. So just simply, uh, you know, there's acid, there's a bit of bacteria, and there's a couple of really unique enzymes, which again, have been purported to help people with things like from dandruff to blood sugar problems. Um, it's actually considered to be medically an actual superfood for people who have uh, bad tolerance for carbohydrates because it really helps with that. 
Uh, we're going to get into how later, but you know, it can effectively lower cholesterol, especially the production of the oxidized kind in your liver. Um, helps a lot with the communication between your liver and your pancreas around insulin, which we'll get into the detail, but that's a really important thing for people nowadays with metabolic syndrome, because that's really where the real traffic jam gets started. Um, because of all those changes in blood health and lipids and everything else, you're going to see better blood pressure. Um, because of the stabilization of your uh, overall insulin metabolism, you can even see a potential prevention for Alzheimer's and other neurological uh, inflammatory conditions. So kind of hard to throw a stick at that. When you look at apple cider vinegar kind of mechanically, and, and I would encourage you to kind of throw kombucha in the, the same, I don't know, if we're going to do a little imaginary kind of Germany here, when you put apple cider vinegar or kombucha or essentially acetic acid in your mouth, it's going to improve uh, the secretion of your digestive enzymes uh, like uh, salivary amylase and other things that break down carbohydrates in your mouth. Uh, the acetic acid, when it gets into your stomach, interestingly, acetic acid and hydrochloric acid um, have a, the, a similar pH. Now, this gets into some fiddly chemistry. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get that deep into that rabbit hole, but, and we're going to have to keep coming back to this because one of the biggest confound, confounds or confounding things about uh, these things medically is if they have certain kinds of probiotic bacteria, how can those bacteria get through your stomach to have any impact on your microbiome? Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to come back to that because there's parts to that, but it is an important thing to go, okay, what happens in your stomach, just about your stomach and that increase of another acid to digest proteins and break down carbon chains that has the same pH means that everything else that's in there is actually easier to navigate its way in that environment because it's already learned on, on the level of chemistry to kind of, uh, find its, its way to buffer or, or live safely specifically with that kind of biochemical activity. And I, I would actually need probably a hologram or a really big chalkboard to make sense of, uh, how acids and pHs, regardless of actual concentration, have a, a similar kind of uh, language, you could say. Okay, let me see if I get this straight. You're saying that if I was to take apple cider vinegar, that apple cider vinegar goes up to the club of your stomach, and the doorman says, hey man, come on in. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and when they both run into proteins, they're going to say, hey, wow, you guys are both wearing the same, you know, gangsta colors or whatever. <laughs> But the bacteria that live in both apple cider vinegar, the enzymes, the probiotics, uh, are designed to live within an acidic environment mm -hmm. instead of a basic environment because your, your lower and small intestine uh, is not acidic, it's basic. And so because it's designed to live in that acidic environment, it actually... It can sneak its way around the stomach acid and actually re-colonize that get, because can... they're specific, and as we'll get into the, the details, they're specifically... A, uh, it's a specific ecology that's meant for that specific kind of language of acid. So I'm picturing apple cider vinegar sneaking past the doorman with his, all of his peeps. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the vinegar and the doorman would be kind of like hanging each other, you know, hand, handing off a couple of Chris Benjamins or something just because we're throwing down some <laughs> LA gangster kind of scenery here. But I think the, the bacteria would be some kind of like new cell phone technology that fit in its way through the club into the back end or something, if it was a spy movie. Because that's where a lot of people get caught up is there's the, the, I mean, I've seen people who are actual medical doctors who are on the forums and other stuff to say, yeah, well, you know, the stomach acid would destroy any kind of, you know, useful probiotic. So, uh, there's really no, you know, the whole mother thing is BS and blah, blah, blah. 
there's a part of me that even before I really dug into the research on this, just to be sure, had an intuitive sense that as a patient who's used these things and felt the profound difference if I use them correctly, especially with things like acne and stuff and Crohn's and colitis, I'm like, no, there's a, there's an ecology positive of tangibly. I can feel it. I can see mm. it. So these people who say it can't work are missing something. Right. So we will get into exactly the, well, not exactly, but as fiddly as we can into it. But I just wanted to give people that sense that if you want to think about anything as a, a therapeutic uh, adjunct to your health, and it's specific to your health uh, of your digestive system, get into the habit of following it through your body like there's a little camera that you swallow. So again, you know, what's it do in your mouth? What's it do in your stomach? When you look at how these things like apple cider vinegar, uh, kombucha, um, and, and a lot of other ferments uh, help with digestive uh, function, when they get below your stomach, they're going to help adjust the pH uh, uh, right below your stomach, which creates... Uh, a kind of boundary threshold that keeps bacteria from coming up too high, which is really important because your stomach acid is actually meant to keep bacteria as far down as it can. But when you look at some of the enzymes that are actually produced and some of the uh, probiotic bacteria that are produced, they actually can, in two different ways, correct uh, protein breakdown in your gut by improving the actual uh, unpairing of the amino acid bonds just because of the acids involved. But there's also some bacteria that correct your uh, yeasts as well, that correct your microbiome in a way that make it more effective at digesting protein. So the the, the way that apple cider vinegar works down there, it almost sounds like it's a, uh, a booster or a natural enhancement to whatever's actually going on down there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. On its own? Yeah, I'm just helping people make that habit because, you know, when you're looking at something that's a natural grandmother tradition thing and you want to figure out how all of the ways it could work, hmm. mouth, stomach, you know, intestinal digestive process, and then into your liver because it does magical things there. We'll get back into, um, they just regulate your whole metabolism. It's know? very And then cool. there's the acid as it goes through your gut and then there's the bacteria and then there's some enzymes. So in each environment, they're going to have more or less activity. Right. And just, just to help people kind of get into the, the habit of thinking things uh, through in the most common sense way. Right. And, and so, sorry, are you talking about uh, kombucha and uh, vinegar? or just... uh, yeah, Well, they're, they're both basically similar. Apple cider vinegar has a lot more, I think it's 5% acetic acid, whereas kombucha is just under 2 But it still has that capacity to be okay in the gut environment. Yep. And uh, apple cider vinegar has a minimal amount of, you know, probiotic... Uh, microbacteria and actual functional enzymes, whereas kombucha has a much more significant measurable volume and a much more uh, robust ecology in the sense of numbers of potentially, you know, dozens of, of specific uh, ecological niche uh, life forms. Hmm. That's great. Interesting. But again, I'm just trying to help people get into that habit of, well, what's that actually do? Well, here it's going to do this and that should be becoming common sense and then, you know, on through the system and all of that. Uh, so again, you know, they're both very similar, but, uh, the apple cider vinegar is more on the acid side and the kombucha is more on the critter side. If we can keep it kind of, I don't know, easy to understand that way. Specifically though, uh, kombucha has, uh, what's actually, I mean, this, it seems so unimaginative to call it, call it this, but it's actually called acetobacter, bacteria that live in acetic acid. So obviously, but you know, 
And it comes back to the point that these guys are designed to live in an acetic acid environment because they're called acetobacter. They're the bacteria that love that place. Right. And then there's a gluco, um, uh, well, they just call it glucobacter, but there's a more complex name for it, but it's a bacteria that just lives rapidly on glucose and kind of, uh, blooms and then, uh, diminishes its population, but it still has, uh, other, uh, positives down, down the road. And again, there are a lot of different species of, uh, different kinds of yeasts and, uh, pre-fungal uh, life forms in kombucha. And this is where it gets tricky because the good, the bad, and the ugly comes back into the conversation. Because depending on if you're having lots of, say, the acetobacter and lots of the glucobacter, uh, and a little tiny bit of other microbes, especially, um, like lactobacillus, uh, which is probably the most commonly used probiotic therapeutically, it's the ratio of those three and how they, you know, since we went to the nightclub <laughs> analogy, you know, so that's that crew. You have some uh, ratio of those three gangs or those three tough guys or whatever. When they go into the nightclub, it really depends on who's in the nightclub. Mm. If it's if it's cowboy music night or if it's rave night, you might have a different interaction just okay. based on the ecology there. But what is interesting is that kombucha also brings with it a whole variety of strains of candida. Now, for most of us, when we hear the candida, if we spend any time thinking about health since the 1980s, candida is kind of like Satan or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's the candida monster. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a, a dirty word. Yeah, but there's also many, many different kinds of candida and when you get into the microbacterial ecology of the body, there is rarely any one thing that's bad. Even E. coli has a good job in there if it's balanced out with other things. Hmm. Whereas if it's not balanced out, it might kill you. So, um, instead of diving too deep into that rabbit hole of the good candida versus the bad candida or, ah, uh, <laughs> all that fits together. I'm just going to ask anyone who's listening to this to imagine those kids that we've all heard about that live on farms that grow up on playing in cow and pig poop who somehow never get allergies or asthma. Because honestly, the more diffuse uh, array of distinctly different life forms, even amongst the strains of candida, balance out the aggressiveness of all strains of bacteria, including all strains of candida. Hmm. So you, you want the messy ecology kid covered in poop kind of version of your tummy? <laughs> <clears throat> so if you're grossed up by the mother of things like, uh, you know, apple cider vinegar or that weird scoby monster that lives in kombucha that most of us never see, that's the, that's the, that's the farm. That, that's the place that's going to make it all messy and, and good. <laughs> messy is good. <laughs> next time I make, next time I make kombucha, I'm going to be thinking about the farm analogy. <laughs> make sure I wash my hands once or twice. Yeah. And I mean, when I've researched candida over the years, I've, Oh God, the, the number of different theories on how many different species or subspecies or, uh, physical forms of ecology, it's, I don't know, now we're up to four forms of, of presentation and between seven and 52 species. So it's, holy cow. Yeah, that's a lot. Yep. Um, but it is, I think a good idea when you're looking at specifically if we're to just take a very quick sidestep into the candida thing, because there are a lot of people, <clears throat> Uh, who may have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or actual full-blown candida, who uh, would really like to know WTF, like how do I actually deal with this? And can ACV or apple cider vinegar uh, and kombucha help? And the answer is very, very much so. 
but again, it's really about finding the right mixture of uh, good, bad, or ugly combinations. And at this point, we don't have any kind of labeling or even testing, I think, in, in, in the standard uh, use of those things to be sure. But as we now are uh, at present, 2018, with respect to the science of candida, we're familiar with four very specific forms. One is basically going to be a singular cellular yeast, and that's very, very prolific. It can grow very, very fast, you know, given your diet or your, I don't know, compulsion to drink sweet drinks, you know, or something, because that's just free sugar um, in a high carbon dioxide environment, and candida prefers a carbon dioxide environment to, say, a high oxygen environment. So again, we're just looking for, you know, the perfect storm for a candida infection would be something like tonic water <laughs> or fruit juice or... Uh, any, anything that's carbonated that has sugar in it. Hmm. But when you're looking at the yeast, you're looking at a very, very uh, simple animal. You know, I'm kind of knocking myself on the head like, oh, not so smart. Uh, once it gets enough of a population though, candida will spread into what is called a pseudo-hyphal form, which when you're looking at, you know, that bottom drawer in your fridge, if you're single and male and you don't like to clean things, not sure. I've, I've seen it on TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. Not me. <laughs> Dear listener, Michael's looking at his fridge now. And, uh, that weird greenish stuff, gray stuff that starts to spread out over top that looks like hair. That's what a hyphae is. This is the beginning of an actual, uh, way that these things fungally can actually spread out and, and tap into things. kind of like how mushrooms work. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you get to a full hyphal form, which is actually when it becomes an entrenched physical uh, membrane uh, that could actually turn into what's called a pathogenic biofilm. And then there's the big bad thing that happens between the beginning of the pseudo-hyphal spread out to the full hyphal matrix of my neighborhood. Like this is when the gang is winning. Uh, and that's where it produces spores to spread out. And this is where candida gets the most dangerous because when the spores start to spread out or spring off of the hyphal, uh, it's almost like hyphal means highways, right? More roadmaps, more, more traffic. It's those spores that can spread out not only through the tube of your gut, but it can actually infiltrate your bloodstream. It can infiltrate different organs, obviously, uh, sex organs, you know, in the sense of vaginal yeast infections and stuff. So... The beauty of apple cider vinegar and kombucha is if you're really consistent, especially if you're eating a seasonal diet and you're using it mostly in the fall when your carbohydrate consumption goes up, you may over time, and I'm talking lifetime, not next two weeks, eventually interfere enough with the spore production side of candida that you would eventually reduce the possibility of maintaining a systemic infection. And that's one of the hardest things, honestly, Anthony, when it comes to people who have chronic uh, long-term digestive problems and immune system deficiencies, is the spores spread out everywhere and you can actually end up have this stuff living in your brain. Hmm. Wow. So again, I just wanted to do a quick aside that the candida in kombucha is actually good for your candida problem because it's multiple species, kid in the poop. Mm -hmm. right? Lots of different kinds of bacteria competing for the ecology that actually grows all the different kinds of, uh, four stages of candida growth. So if you had a pernicious one, you want to have all of its cousins in there fighting over the food. Mm -hmm. And then all of the bacteria that co-inhabit things like, you know, apple cider vinegar and kombucha, they can compete with candida because over time, and it's a long-term process to get rid of systemic candida, these two would be your kind of like best allies in the sense of a general therapeutic nudge of probiotic things, instead of taking massive amounts, uh, say of, you know, 
uh, lactobacillus or bifidus and things like that uh, orally in massive amounts. Because although that may help in the short term, it may actually make things worse in the long term. Hmm. And I think we did a whole podcast once on the use of suppositories and why most probiotics in, in emergent situations are better to go in your bum. So with systemic candida, one thing people do is they start using their uh, diluted apple cider vinegar or their kombucha in the other <laughs> end of the tunnel. Um, or if people have really bad SIBO, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and the, the main way you're going to know that is you bloat no matter what you eat. Uh, their introduction to things like uh, kombucha or especially stronger probiotic foods like sauerkraut is only to take a tablespoon, put it in a, a jar, put a little bit of oil over top of it, shake it up and maybe throw in some basil and a pinch of salt. And now that's your salad dressing, right? You want to be so careful with your, uh, consumption of these products, you know, in the sense of incremental, uh, treatment that that's your, your basic introductory dose is, oh yeah, you're allowed to put a dollop in your salad <laughs> mm. instead of drinking like your friend, you know, a liter and a half a day. Right. Cause that, that could actually kill you literally. Yeah. I don't know that it's actually doing him any good and I've actually called him on that. So, um, I'm sure that once, um, we put this podcast out into the universe, I'm going to make him listen to it. Yeah. Well, we're going to come up with a, up to a funny story in a bit about that, but I'm going to on, on layer the onion layer by layer or else this is going to turn into a bit of a car accident. Sure. Let, let me just say something real quick that any time that I've ever been, uh, I was going to say called to, drawn to, uh, taking apple cider vinegar regularly or taking apple cider vinegar or kombucha, it's always been regular and it's always been in small amounts over time. I've never been interested in taking it uh, by the glass or anything like that. Yeah. Well, lucky you, you got a good brain because it, it really goes badly the other way. Huh. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got a couple of these little small, I think they're tea glasses from little glass. I don't know, they must be like two ounces or whatever, like Moroccan tea glasses or something. They're very flowery. I bought them and I went, oh, and it's kind of, you know, the design only goes about three quarters of the way up. I went, yeah, that looks like a good unit of measure. One of those a day. Yeah, that, for, that reminds me, I gapped on this, but uh, the therapeutic threshold dose is two ounces twice a day for kombucha. So four ounces a day is considered your maximum threshold for overall safety. Ah, interesting. And you see it being sold in volumes much greater than that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I mean, you could make your own and just have a little, you could take your, cause usually when people do kombucha, they do it in a kind of a crock. Yeah. So, you I mean, you could have your little special, you know, hand carved jade kombucha two ounce thing and just do a scoop in the morning and a scoop at night. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the way I did it. Or with uh, apple cider vinegar, you would just dilute it, you know, a, a tablespoon or a teaspoon, depending on tolerance. Uh, but again, the idea is to use it twice a day, hmm. right? Or if you're using it as a stimulant for meals before 20 minutes, 10 minutes before any large meal. Right. But again, these, these are multiple use uh, therapeutic uh, protocols. So it really depends on what you're trying to nudge. I mean, there are people who might want to use it to just wash out your mouth because you're you're dealing with, uh, say, a... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Gingivitis, like a cr chronic bacterial infection of the, of the gums of your mouth. The problem though, if the concentration is too high, is it'll eat your teeth. Yep. Yep. So <laughs> dil dilution is your friend. It's not going to make <laughs> the situation like you're, you're not going to stop it from working. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're just going to slow it down. So you find a, a good balance way. And when it comes to the bug wars, if we're going to give a umbrella to half of modern medicine now <laughs> slow is the only way to go right yeah because when you push things around you you're 
it's, it's just so confusing for you, for your clinicians, for other people, because mm. it, it's so hard to predict what's going to happen when you get aggressive. Right. Oh, well. So you ready for some geek out whacked chemistry? Sure. Okay. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here we go. This is exactly step-by-step step what acetic acid is going to do. And it's, it's a bit, feel free to help me make this make sense to people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the first thing that you're going to see happen very unexpectedly is that it triggers a self-regulation, almost an adaptogen-like self-regulation to insulin receptor function. So if you're not familiar with the subtleties of insulin, insulin is a hormone. Uh, it basically tells your cells through its engagement to a receptor, which is kind of like a key opening a door. So when insulin goes up, the key opens the door so it can move uh, things like glucose inside and outside of cells. Now, instead of thinking the, the key is a simple key, like, you know, you would use to start your car, think of it more like, um, maybe one of those, uh, combination locks. You have to spin like 10 left, 20 right, 25 left or whatever. And depending on the combination, you know, in the sense of volume of interaction, uh, previous status of insulin receptor site uh, function or overcrowding or what we actually call insulin resistance, the kind of self-regulation or, or correction is going to be a bit different. So it's not just one size fits all. It magically kicks open the door because that could actually make you very sick too. So it's a, it's about noticing there's an adaptogen like reflexive change to those receptors. It's not just open or closed or open on Tuesday or something. It, it's a regulatory thing. And for a lot of people in the modern world who live in the, you know, modern diet where we're eating close to a hundred pounds of sugar a year on top of our actual diet, there's no way for your insulin receptors to not be jammed up. If you're not eating seasonally or you're not fasting in some kind of significantly consistent way, those receptors are going to be overcrowded, jammed up and tired, right? So these, that acetic acid potential just for those receptors, if you're a fitness person and you want better recovery from exercise, that's how it's going to help you, hmm. right? Just by moving the whole lactic acid you know, system more effectively because you can burn glycogen and glucose better. And again, you're talking about, um, apple cider vinegar. Or kombucha, acetic acid. It's, it's in, it's in different concentrations in both, but that's how it actually makes such a big difference for people is, you know, and again, it depends on the person. So if everyone's going, I want to know how to make this happen yesterday, it's like not the right question. The idea is how can you make this work within your hopefully seasonal diet lifestyle forever? Ah, ha, ha. Hmm, Instead okay. of, I want to fix my pimples. Well, it may, may help with that, but focus on the why. Right. Because that, that's how we're going to get into this. So it's just really important to start this because now we're going to get into a, a slightly more holy crap uh, situation. So if we can all nod and fist bump that, oh, wow, we can get this insulin receptor sensitivity globally throughout your body. Now, when you kind of dive into your liver, the number of insulin receptors per cell membrane is incredibly high, like, you know, zeros on top of normal numbers. So the concentration of receptors for insulin is so high in your liver and it's supposed to be high in your liver because your liver and your pancreas talk to each other all day about the kind of fuel you're supposed to be running and, uh, how hard it's going to work. And when you start prying your, your nose into, if we were to actually physically pretend we were to poke our nose into like the space of your liver to see what's going on in there. Once that insulin receptors in the liver get more naturalized, 
And that would actually be the Chinese medicine description of how these vinegars regulate your liver or bring the effect of everything else you're doing to your liver. Because when you regulate hundreds of thousands of insulin receptors on your liver cells, your ability to tolerate carbohydrate is much better. Hmm. Your ability to dispose of things without it turning back into triglycerides is much better right? Because your liver won't be going, oh, well, it's always sugar, always calories, always busy, always turning it into triglycerides, always turning it into fat. We talked about the ketogenic diet a couple of episodes ago when our whole point was to become fat adapted, right? And it turns out that that's one of the magic powers of things like ACV kombucha is they actually help you become fat adapted by changing the way your liver actually understands the movement of energy between carbohydrates, triglycerides, and fat. And that's pretty cool. And so does that, um, does one need to keep taking this in order for that to happen? Or does the liver at some point actually, um, recognize this something like, does it actually build a muscle in the, in the liver so that it actually, um, can do that in the future? Or do you need to keep, uh, reminding it with, uh, the acetic acid? Well, I'm going to just say yes to the overall question because <laughs> it does help build the muscle, but here's a way to understand it. I think that's more, uh, easier for people to just intuitively understand. Sure. So if I'm a person who eats, um, let's say I'm trying to be healthy, I'm eating oatmeal for breakfast. I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm saying that's what a lot of people think is a good thing to start with. And I want to do better. So I'm going to have, you know, instead of, uh, say a big bowl of pasta for lunch, I'm going to try and have a whole grain sandwich with a whole bunch of vegetables and, you know, healthier proteins in there or something like that. And then for dinner, I'm going to try and, you know, keep going with healthy things, but I'm, I'm stuck on this idea that, um, you know, a lot more, uh, carbohydrates and starches and stuff for some reason is better, you know, for me than eating fat. Cause that's been on the menu of what a lot of people react to around uh, healthy since the 1950s. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so if you're still in that, uh, so if you're still in that particular delusion, try and get a picture of the muscles of your, your liver and, uh, you know, the insulin uh, receptors and everything in there. Cause if you're constantly overcrowding your liver with not a very nutrient dense, but a high carbohydrate diet, which is most people nowadays still, except for our listeners who are smarter than that. Haha. <laughs> um, what's more important is in the sense of muscle is the sensitivity and the rebound reflex or response of that entire system in your liver is the problem. Because if you suddenly stopped eating after 10 years of having a high carbohydrate diet, you would be in hell mm -hmm. in terms of the hypoglycemia and potentially other uh, systemic problems, headaches, you know, other things from basically, you know, chemical withdrawal. And that's one of the biggest problems. And that's kind of a, uh, one of the ways you would say Chinese medicine is, is thinking when it says, oh, damn, everyone's got chronic liver stagnation. It doesn't literally mean that there's a traffic jam of things in your liver, although it can in the sense of a fatty liver. What's often more likely to be the case is the resiliency or the reflex or how, how quickly those receptor sites wake up and like puppies get perky and want to play. Because they're all basically asleep because they've been at work on overtime for 10 years. Right. And that, that's one of the biggest things around sensitivity is if your body's just burdened like a slave in a 19th, uh, 17th century factory of some kind, that that's about how much resilience or adaptability it's going to have left. So this is where uh, acetic acid is so powerful 
because it resensitizes the sensitivity or the responsiveness or the, the reaction time of all these hundreds of thousands of receptors per second mm -hmm. in your liver, changing the entire status of fatty acid uh, disposition. This is a tricky thing. And this, this is actually, I mean, I saw this, uh, I guess I call it a podcast. It was a Joe Rogan podcast. And it was Chris Kresser, who's kind of a colleague of mine, uh, in the sense of functional medicine and, you know, how we think about problem solving. And then I can't remember the guy's name. He's a board certified heart surgeon who's a vegan and is super down on the whole vegan thing and tells everyone and comes off like board certified cardiothoracic surgeon and, and comes across as someone who's a really, really high fuel kind of vegan. So I don't know if you know a lot of vegans, Anthony, but they sometimes can be sure of what they're doing. They can be very condescending about what everyone else is doing too. And I'm not sure if you've ever spent much time with board certified heart surgeons who sit there spending, you know, their afternoons scooping out literal scoops of fat from your uh, coronary artery directly feeding the muscles of your heart. Hmm. Those people tend to think of themselves as deities in some way, just trying to be friendly. <laughs> So here's Chris Kresser and this guy who's pretty smart, uh, but he's the double whammy of I'm a vegan and I'm, I'm a heart surgeon. <laughs> so it was an interestingly tilted conversation around who knows what they're talking about and who actually thinks through what they're talking about. Because mm -hmm. he kept going back to this simple, simple bit of physiology. When you eat a lot of saturated fat or your liver is producing a lot of saturated fat. Now we're not allowed to think about why or how or anything else. We're only allowed to think about this because this is where this thinking comes from. When that saturated concentration, that saturated fat concentration goes up, um, your liver actually is going to have a, uh, a certain receptor upregulate the production of cholesterol in a way that if, you know, you do the thinking and you actually include inflammation and insulin sensitivity and a bunch of other stuff, will at a certain threshold of modern life complete crap hijinks. I mean, you really have to be trying to hurt yourself. Humans are very adaptable. We can heal unless you overdo it so badly, you're going to hurt yourself. That's actually one of the vectors for arteriosclerotic placking, but high saturated fat producing a bit more cholesterol, um, in, in the sense of opportunistic tissue repair instincts in the body are perfectly healthy unless you're full of inflammation and oxidized free radicals. Because the cholesterol can't hurt you unless it's oxidized and your whole vascular system is inflamed and your whole vascular system is damaged because of the high insulin. But here's this guy, 2018, sitting there on a Joe Rogan podcast going back to 1950s, you know, research on one receptor in the liver, regardless of the entire rest of the story. And that was his entire defense for the entire thing. I'm a vegan. I make all my, all my patients cause they have heart disease become vegans because as long as we can keep this one thing, never mind all the hundreds of other things going on, uh, under control, we're going to be fine. And poor Chris, who's literally a, you know, genius, <laughs> uh, and one of the best researchers on the planet is just having this amazingly futile conversation saying, but we know more now we have actual clearly double blinded tests saying that's wrong. So if you want to dive into this and you're like three hour long conversations amongst people who really do know what they're talking about and people who love to sound like they know everything, that's a really great way to spend three hours. It's a really, really entertaining conversation because they really try and geek out and the disparity of, of authentic understanding between the guy who's supposed to be the, the, the real doctor with the real, you know, 
mm-hmm. badass knowledge compared to the nerdy acupuncturist who's probably one of the leading researchers on the planet in integrative health. <laughs> it was a great conversation. Anyway, a bit of an aside there, but it is important to recognize that as long as your liver's uh, adaptability around glucose sensitivity, uh, changing the need for it to upregulate the production of fats, you've solved that problem. And it's a normal thing. It's a healthy thing. It's not even a problem thing. But if you think it's a problem, these products, assuming you're going to actually take care of yourself for the rest of your lifestyle, would increase the rate at which you'd get better from the reasons why people get heart disease. Mm. Because they change the way your liver understands itself. Right. Right. And I think that would be a a very powerful uh, perspective that uh, uh, mainstream medicine could adopt. Well, I mean, there's lots of other avenues to make this happen. This is just the goofy grandmother thing of, oh yeah, have a little bit of acid before you go to bed. (laughs) Not acid like, you know, acid, but like kombucha or ACV or whatever. (laughs) Grandmother acid, not not teenager (laughs) acid. Hey man, your grandmother got any acid? (laughs) (laughs) Although I know some grandmothers around here that, you know. So now that we're talking about sort of the sort of fatty acid side of this, uh, not only will that help your liver become more sensitive to sugars and how they're turned into fats and what those fats tell your liver about cholesterol, more importantly on a cellular level, literally inside the cells uh, on an almost epigenetic level, uh, acetic acid will actually upregulate uh, fatty acid synthesis. So if you're trying to become a fat burning machine or fat adapted or make this keto thing actually work while cheating a little bit, <laughs> These kind of uh, supplements um, and other things that move in the same direction will help because now your your cells are triggered epigenetically to use fatty acids for calories. Hmm. So now you're like the entire stream from what you put in your mouth to how it goes through your stomach to how it goes through your small intestine into your liver to how your liver actually understands your liver to how your cell, cells actually understand the mechanics of their own engines work. Everyone's burning fats and no one has to deal with excess carbohydrates because everything is so uh, better sensitized because of what these acids do to those receptors. And I'm not saying that this is anything else than just a weird thing, but it actually upregulates one gene, uh, UPC2 uh, expression inside the uh, enzymatic process of how your actual uh, genes talk through your uh, epigenetic system and uh, all those pathways again, specifically to not only burn fatty acids, but to uncouple proteins and put them back together in a a way that actually uh, simplifies or stimulates the actual production of new cells and new DNA. So DNA is always pulling itself apart, putting itself back together. And that the epigenetic cloud of like 50,000 enzymes around your genes that are constantly trying to like do a good job to put it back together are going to have a simpler time uh, on a on an amino acid level, because that enzyme is now triggered to a more effective role. So it's like having a construction crew trying to repair, I don't know, your, your house. And, um, you have a helicopter and a boat and a truck bringing you material all at the same time. So no matter what corner of your property you're trying to get material from, it's right there in exactly the piece you needed to cut to size. Hmm. It sounds like it's the thing that gives everything else the clearest instructions in the easiest possible way for it to do what it's supposed to do. If I was looking for a mechanical way to demonstrate all of the ways that we kind of imply qi flow in Chinese medicine, Mm -hmm. this would be a great example because from your mouth to your stomach, to your microbiome, to your liver, to your cells, to your bleeping genes, 
everything just seems to move a little bit better and through receptors a bit smarter. Mm -hmm. And one last thing about that uh, unique uh, pathway. When you get into ketosis or you're doing fasting or intermittent fasting, but especially prolonged fasting, the thing that most of us are worried about, well, a lot of us are worried about, is loss of muscle mass. And that's not something you want to just be flagrant with. I mean, muscle mass is an important, uh, I don't know, dial in the body. But there's this thing called pro protein sparing. That, that basically means a certain enzymes are saying you will burn fat before you'll burn protein. Because if you don't have that enzyme telling your body not to burn protein, your body is driven to burn protein faster because it's more expensive to maintain. So if I'm not eating anything for a few days and I don't have good, uh, um, this enzyme isn't doing its job very well, my body will recognize it takes 50 units of energy to maintain a pound of muscle in a day and it takes five units of energy to maintain a pound of fat in a day. So if I'm the accountant, okay, buddy, we're going to keep the puppy that costs 50 bucks a day or the puppy that keeps costs five bucks a day. And we don't have a lot of bucks right now because we're fasting. Hmm. Your body would naturally, especially if you're in a highly inflamed, uh, situation or your immune system's freaking out, you would naturally become catabolic to protein because it's more expensive to carry. Right. But as long as that protein sparing enzyme turns on, which it's supposed to, you'll just burn fat instead. And so, sorry, you're saying acetic acid is the thing that actually turns that on. Yeah, it, it helps upregulate that specific uh, genetic pathway that produces that specific enzyme, UPC something. <laughs> Very cool. So I'm just saying like, I mean, this, this is, you know, for most modern people who are looking for a gentle, kind, patient way, intent people, <laughs> this is a lifestyle <laughs> thing. You're not trying to fix everything in a, five minutes. This stuff's gold. I mean, it's simple. If you don't overdo it, you're, you're going to take care of so many problems, uh, in the long term by just doing some good old fashioned grandma folk medicine. We just know more about it now. Mm -hmm. So for all of us who are looking for more energy on less food, you know, but here, here's, here's the way to do it. Wow. Uh, very interesting. I mean, I, again, I go back to, um, how, uh, how I've used both of those things, um, and I say how I've used them because I use them medicinally. I don't use them, you know, recreationally. I don't just sort of guzzle kombucha. I can't. Mm -hmm. it, just, it just doesn't work for me. It would go very badly. And I guess this is a good place to bring it up. And this is especially true for anyone who has things like Crohn's, colitis, uh, irritable bowel, D or A. People who tend to poop out more liquid poop. And there's a lot of other reasons than just what I've mentioned uh, when you're pooping out liquid poop, you're pooping out a lot of your food. I know that's kind of gross, but your colon's job is to basically suck all of the liquid and all of the nutrients out of the poop that's still in your body. Mm -hmm. So when your poop is more watery or more liquid, you're losing all those nutrients, especially potassium. Now, uh, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, well, if you take acid, like, you know, uh, apple cider vinegar and stuff like that, or kombucha, it's going to help you dissolve minerals and uptake minerals. Well, sorry, folks, if you've, you know, been running on that, um, opinion, that's actually false. Uh, the truth of it is, uh, either, uh, apple cider vinegar or kombucha have no clinical research benefit for absorption of minerals. And in fact, they can actually defeat that a little bit in the long term if you take too much and, uh, especially potassium. So, uh, imagine a person who has Crohn's and colitis and they're having a flare up and for whatever reason, someone tells them you just need to use the good kombucha and the apple cider vinegar. So 
now they're, you know, adding acetic acid in concentration with the vinegar and in lower concentration, but more often throughout the day. And maybe like your friend, they're guzzling it because it's kind of friendly beer. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint people, it's not friendly beer. And, um, that can actually put you into a, such a potassium deficiency because you probably already have one. And most people in our culture eat half the potassium daily that they need or less. Yeah. You actually have to eat like six literally bowls of vegetables a day to just, without having to do a lot of screwing around to make sure you're getting enough potassium every day. Wow. And where it is like literally the biggest deficiency in Western diets. Hmm. So if you add too much kombucha that blocks, this is the downside of acetic acid is it blocks the uptake of potassium into your gut. Now you're a potassium deficient person, even if you're eating six bowls of vegetables a day, cause you can't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when the people are guzzling that stuff, you could actually end up in the hospital, uh, presenting what would look like a, a Crohn's or colitis flare up in the sense of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And it's because you overdid the kombucha. And I've seen this actually happen where people get on the kombucha and think, if I just keep taking more of it every day, I'll finally get, and I'll win the bacterial war, <clears throat> I'll kill the bad bugs and my colitis will go away. And there's a lot of uh, superficial thinking around how those diseases work that make you think that would be a good idea, but it wouldn't be. And in fact, it could kill you. You know, whenever I see kombucha sold in the stores in those larger volumes, I mean, even like the size of a bottle of Coke or something like that, right? I just think... Um, it's, it's such a uh, expensive way to drink it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always, I'm curious about the, um, uh, not the veracity, the, um, the quality, like good, you know, bad, ugly. Yeah. Well, it, it, and, and because of that, whenever it is that I've, uh, that I've made my own, I've always been kind of stingy with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, this stuff is really good. Four and, ounces a day, man. Any more than that, you're looking at maybe hurting yourself. Well, yeah. But I mean, I think my motivations for sipping it as I did, you know, an ounce at a time was just because, um, it was too strong compared to what I was drinking in the stores. And I thought if I drank more of it, I would, I don't know, get more something. I, I, I didn't understand why I was actually drawn to drink it that way. Then I just started doing it because it was like, that's what made sense. But anyways. I bow to your intuition, sir. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it was my intuition, but. Well, the poor, poor people I know who've almost killed themselves on this stuff are not too happy. That's, so there's just a couple of other details here. Uh, I don't want to leave the insulin sensitivity in your liver part uh, without saying that, uh, and this would actually probably have to be its own podcast, but there's a thing we call insulin-like growth factor, which competes for insulin to tell your body how to utilize energy and to uh, stabilize your body's metabolism while you're repairing tissue. And uh, your uh your pineal gland will secrete uh, a hormone that tells your body to secrete another hormone that basically gets your body to produce more growth hormones and more insulin-like growth factor if you're injured. And then one of the most easy ways your body instinctually recognizes that you're injured is you stop eating. Hmm. So picture a cougar who zigs instead of zags and has to, you know, repair its jaw muscles because it got kicked in the face by Bambi or something. Um... All animals, when they're injured, will typically fill their gut full of grass, especially predators, clean out their entire digestive system of all potential toxins and or calories, and then they lie down for four days and the whole thing rebuilds itself because they're doing the IGF or the insulin-like growth factor and the HGH or human growth hormone that's running repair. Now, your body has, you know, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. It can do one thing or another thing. 
So if you're constantly overdoing uh, calories and you're not regulating the sensitivity of your enzyme of, of your receptors, you're going to end up with a lack of functional IGF and HGH. So if you do have long-term uh, repair tissue injury or repair processes going on, injury processes going on, um, you're having dysfunctional repair around uh, arthritis or, or scar tissue and stuff, this is a part of why. Because hmm. you're not getting the right uh, hormones to run your metabolism because you're doing Advil instead of cleaning yourself out with a bunch of grass and then, you know, lying in a shrub for a few days like all other good predators would do. <laughs> So that covers, I think, the, the essentials of, I think that covers the essentials of how the acids actually help uh, with respect to digestive function and especially uh, how, how it influences all those receptors and genes, which is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see how um, comprehensive um, it is and how, I mean, simple, I suppose. It's just a, a shot a day. It's not a... It's got to be. It's not a big regime that you got to get into. Yeah. Um, and for people who are dealing with, uh, any aspect of obesity or cr like cravings, uh, for sugars, or just you feel hungry, um, in the long term, if you, if you are consistent with being patient and your, your meal portions and your use of say ACV or kombucha as a small amount per day, uh, in the long term, they can help uh, balance out ghrelin and lectin or pardon me, leptin. Uh, which are your primary uh, appetite regulating hormones. So if you're a person who just sits there going, I've already eaten 2,000 calories a day and I'm starving all of the time, you may have leptin resistance. And this is another uh, strategy in the long term to get those uh, um, those leptin receptors to be more sensitive because they're all part of the same system. But you have to work on the whole thing. And that's why these products would be so um, effective if you're also doing intermittent fasting because you're just speeding up how it cures the, the whole metabolism. Hmm. When you said products there, that makes me think of, um, I've seen apple cider vinegar uh, as a supplement form or in tablets. Um, and I'm just curious, is there, um, is that as effective or uh, just as good as taking it um, in its normal state, in a liquid state? Well, here's an interesting parable that might pry this out. So I'm working on another cookbook and I'm wanting to focus on a lot of unfermented things. And one of the things I came across was the use of buckwheat flowers and buckwheat groats for people who are trying to do a, like an AIP or an autoimmune protocol and how it kind of would work for most people, but how you'd want to ferment it with something like one of these acids first. And then there was this one uh, recipe that somebody had where they had taken buckwheat, soaked it in, in these things, uh, or I think maybe it was whey, different kind of probiotic uh, process. And then they had put the buckwheat groats in a dehydrator to turn them into like a granola. And they were trying to say, this is going to be one of the best probiotic cereals in the world. And, you know, me being me, I'm like, the temperature of that would have destroyed the bacteria. Hmm. So if I'm thinking of a probiotic food and it's all dried out, you know, in the sense of a powder or something, I guess it's dead. So I, uh, this is actually a couple of nights ago, I was up for whatever reason and I dug into it. And in fact, the way probiotics work is they can fold into a dormant state and, and basically just sit there in a dehydrated thing, as long as the temperature didn't get too high. And this is why the raw foodists have, I think, uh, uh, left us with something useful to think about, <laughs> which is if you are going to dehydrate your food, do it around 112 degrees. 
because then the the probiotic life form can again fold itself into a little corner and then when it gets hydrated uh, and works around the the body the body temperature of mammals like us it can actually proliferate and re-inoculate the body mm. so when it comes to supplements i know that's a long answer but the visual thing may have help people um, if you're taking a powdered kombucha or powdered ACV, you might be getting some still active uh, probiotics, and I'm assuming they can turn any acid into a, a pre-acidic salt, hmm. you know, in the sense of a capsule. So um, the answer is, yeah, that they would work, but not nearly as well or as effectively or as immediately uh, as, as the actual ferments themselves. Yeah. Okay. So long answer, but um, for those people who are really trying to understand that the, the whole system of how these things work. I thought that might be valuable because the only thing really left to talk about is the fact that there are species of probiotics living in both, uh, apple cider vinegar and much more prolifically, uh, in kombucha. Hmm. And one of the main ones is the one that lives with, uh, in the environment of acids, especially with that kind of pH, like acetic acid and hint, hint hydrochloric acid. And again, there's no way to explain unless you're a chemist and I'm not even a chemist. So, I mean, I can imagine I could probably explain it with a chalkboard, but I don't think it's going to help most people, uh, to go too far into this, but, um, probiotics that live in certain kind of acidic environments can live, if not thrive in the same kind of pH acid environments. So yes, things like the whole sock strain and certain candida strains can walk very, very happily through the nightclub of your stomach because they've got street cred. <laughs> People can recognize them and then they can get into that other side of the pH environment where uh, they can also live quite happily, uh, you know, as they proliferate into the entire ecology of your microbiome. And uh, there are other enzymes, uh, and I mentioned this before, but I just want to wrap it up by making sure we don't forget this. There are other enzymes that cooperate with the changes in your microbiome to improve protein breakdown by the microbiome in your gut. And that's not something most of us think about because we think most of your protein digestion happens in your stomach, which is true. But there's this other stage where uh, you're going to relieve uh, your pancreatic enzymes of a burden you're going to relieve your liver of a burden by having the best protein breakdown in your gut. And in fact, that's one of the top five lab tests we do initially in functional medicine is a urine test to make sure the protein moving through your gut into your liver and through your liver into the rest of your body is happening in the right way. Because otherwise it'll build up a metabolite that we would test for. And if that metabolite is high, it means your microbiome is not chomping down your protein very well. And that creates a couple of really weird things. Again, burden on the rest of your digestive system. But those undigested proteins, and this, this goes back to the, you know, why red meat is bad thing from the vegetarian side of the argument, which is, oh yeah, big chunks of meat just sit there and rot in your intestines. And, and we have this picture of a half-eaten hamburger, you know, turning into some kind of garbage dump in your gut. That, that's a profoundly ridiculous exaggeration of something. But if you do have incompletely digested proteins in your colon, you will get more putrefactive bacteria to break down those proteins. And that's going to give you more foul-smelling gas. It's going to give you more foul-smelling breath. It's going to give you more foul-smelling sweat, which is why a lot of Asian people think that non-Asian people stink because we, we just off-gas, you know, the burden of excess protein we eat. If we eat that way, if not, don't worry, but you smell lovely. <laughs> anyway, uh, more than just the cosmetics of how we smell and how our gas smells, 
the same putrefactive evaporants like ammonia and methane and other things can actually get into your blood-brain barrier, making you a bit stupid in the sense of sluggish memory, poor focus, brain fog, and speeding up the inflammatory process of whatever may be already going on immunologically inside your head. Hmm. So take care of your tummy, folks. Feed your bugs with some healthy bugs and you don't have to overdo it. And if you're not sure about any of this, please sit down with your clinician and say, I really want to figure out either the insulin receptor sensitivity issues or the microbiome issues or whatever, but go slow because you're going for the long-term win, which is the rest of your life, not the short-term win, which is, hey, I got rid of that pimple. Hmm. So on that, the short-term win, I'm going to bring it back to the idea that I presented at the beginning of the podcast, the silver bullet. Uh, because it's totally uh, what that was for me. So somewhere in my travels uh, with uh, Adventures with Anthony's Gallbladder. <laughs> do, do, do. Today we're going to talk about the lovely life that this thing has lived inside of my body. I, I see a children's book series somewhere over there. <laughs> yeah, lovely little greeny, yellowy, fatty, <laughs> yeah. digesting thing. Hello, I'm Anthony's Gallbladder. Ow. Yeah, and Anthony's gallbladder has been poking at him throughout the whole of his life, uh, except over, I'd say, the past uh, 10 or so years, um, where somewhere on an online forum, I read that apple cider vinegar was good for gallbladder attacks. And I remember reading that and going, you got to be kidding, and thinking apple cider vinegar, ooh, ick. Uh, and then, um, lo and behold, you know, uh, out of uh, a desperate measure, for those of you who've never suffered a gallbladder attack, it's something that's located just sort of, uh, how would you describe it? The, you're at the bottom of your uh, your breastbone, uh, maybe about five inches over to the right, just sort of tucked underneath your ribs there is where your gallbladder lives. I can touch mine right now and poke at it. And it's not bothering me. Anyways, this little thing is enough uh, of a pain in the butt that it would knock me out for the whole day. Um, and I never knew what actually caused it. I had gallbladder attacks since I was a kid. Fast forward the tape over the years, doing a lot of homework and research and figuring out what foods aggravate it. Uh, coffee would aggravate it. Uh, wheat would aggravate it. Um, too much sugar would aggravate it. Basically all the good stuff. And <laughs> um, realizing what it was that I was actually doing to aggravate it, I could actually control it. But then comes the holidays and times when I would actually overindulge and these sort of things would happen. And uh, I was always looking for something to actually deal with it, short of a hot water bottle and going to bed and waking up with it actually being normal. Um, normal, but still sort of the touch, right? Uh, because it would be, I guess, like swollen or something. Anyways, apple cider vinegar, I read that in a forum one day. Just, I don't know what I was looking for. I saw that and I was like, huh, I'm going to give that a try. And I did. And I didn't know how to take it. I just had, well, I bought a bottle of apple cider vinegar. I just poured it into a spoon and just downed it just like that. Uh, I took two or three tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. And um, it was like magic. It was like, um, there's an old uh, a Drano commercial I remember seeing, right? Like where they show the crud at the bottom of, yeah. the, of the drain. And then they show the Drano coming in. And then they show it just magically moving that blockage. Instantly, I could feel the apple cider vinegar going through my gut because it's like drinking a shot of whiskey or something. It's this hot molten lead kind of thing pouring through my veins. And when it reached my gallbladder, I could feel it actually like corkscrewing its way through it and dissolving it. I was just like looking down at my stomach going, shut up, <laughs> shut the front door. This isn't working. And it totally did. And um, for years well, uh, after that, 
um, I mean, I would go to, there's a, there's a wholesaler here in town that actually sells organic apple cider vinegar by the gallon. I had that stuff or I, I, I still have one of those things in my, in my cupboard. And I always have a small bottle of like, you know, three or four ounces, like a Mickey of apple cider vinegar. For those of you who aren't Canadian, a Mickey is how many ounces, Michael? Eight no, ounces? I think it's 10. 10 ounces. Yeah. A small bottle of, of apple cider vinegar that I would travel with. Mm-hmm. It's always in my travel kit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or if I, you know, if I'm flying and I can't do that or whatever, I go and I spend the three dollars expensive. I'm, as I'm it getting is. I'm getting a little tear in the corner of my eye. I'm pretending <laughs> Anthony's my son and he's becoming a biohacker. It's so <laughs> it's so it's such a dad moment to see your biohacker, you know, just finally go off and well, then, carry his apple cider vinegar into a suitcase off to the world, you know. <laughs> but it would totally work, right? Especially if I went back home to visit my folks who are more likely to indulge in crappy foods for me anyways. Delicious, but not necessarily what my stomach and body seems to think. Oh man, I'm just realizing everything is emptiness syndrome right now. <laughs> everything is about saying goodbye to my kid because he's off to the world now. Oh well. Do you want me to give him a bottle of apple cider vinegar? I was going to say, that's, I think that's where that imagery was coming from. Is like, oh, there's Anthony going off into the world with his briefcase or his little backpack and little bottle of hippie vinegar, you know, to go off into the world. Well, the, the, the vinegar worked and then, no. and, and then, and then, and then, um, over time, um, I've, I don't know when the last time I've had a really severe gallbladder attack to the point where I've been doubled over in pain. Uh, there was one time that it actually happened that I was downtown, just so happened to work for a catering company. I walked into the kitchen, <laughs> give me some vinegar. What? What do you got for vinegar? You got any apple cider vinegar? And it was red wine vinegar. <laughs> and it was enough for me to actually uh, be, take balsamic that. Balsamic can be done. Yeah. Well, balsamic was a bit too much, but the red wine vinegar, I downed uh, like a couple ounces of that and it was enough for me to be able to drive home. And then get in a bathtub and warm things up and have things go. Anyways, the apple cider vinegar totally worked. Over the years, um, the gallbladder pl- attacks are nowhere near as severe. And um, I can't drink apple, vider- apple cider vinegar straight anymore. It's like literally drinking turpentine or something like that. It's so caustic to my system, right? Yeah. Whereas, so mm-hmm. I don't... Note to the listeners, folks. Yeah. So I don't... Dilute I, it, please. <laughs> I don't know if that's something that I did because of the way I drank it in the past, or if that's something that's actually transformed because of the way something may have healed down there. There's a, you know, a path for bile that was actually carved by apple cider vinegar. I don't know what, but anyways. It does remind me that I would love to do, I'm not sure if I would fill up a whole podcast, although maybe it'd fill up a normal length podcast, uh, to just talk about bile. Hmm. Yeah. And what exactly is going on with that whole thing? Because it's, it's actually, I would say a crime that we cut out people's gallbladders and just leave them, you know, sorry, buddy. We're just going to lop it out instead of going there with our laparoscopic stuff, pull the stones out, sew it back up and then pat you on the head and say, behave. <laughs> I, I had a neighbor who uh, suffered a gallbladder attack, didn't know what it was, went to the hospital and they're like, oh, it's a gallbladder thing. Don't worry about it. It'll pass. He goes home the next day, same thing. Meanwhile, on the way home from the hospital, he stops at Mickey D's <laughs> and he gets himself a, a you know Big Mac, a cheeseburger, and a milkshake and a Coke. Doesn't realize what he's doing. And anyways, next day has the panic attack and in the middle of the night ends up going to the hospital. And by the time I woke up that morning, they'd removed his gallbladder. I had read once that a gallbladder industry in in terms of medical interventions is a $5 billion a year industry. Yeah, I think the last time I looked was 130,000 gallbladders a year on average in North America. Yeah. Well, and, and the crazy thing was, is he came home. By the time I saw him, you know, he, uh, like at nine or 10 in the morning, he drove up the driveway and 
hopped out of the car. And he <laughs> Look had, at my holes, man. I got scars. Staples. Yeah, I got scars. And then he reaches back in the car and he grabs his <laughs> bag of Mickey D's. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, really? Did they not tell you? And I, and I was just like, dude, it was apple cider vinegar. You could have <laughs> saved yourself. <laughs> Damn it. We need yeah. a time machine. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so amazing stuff. And yeah. so that that's my silver bullet. Apple cider vinegar, silver, silver bullet story. Uh, and I've taken it sort of ongoing, off and on, depending on how I feel about actually taking it. Mm-hmm. I take a shot in the morning. Sometimes I'll take it before dinner um, with a little bit of warm water and honey. It's great. Yeah. With, uh, warm water. and uh, if, if you take apple cider vinegar with uh, warm water and honey and dissolve the honey and then you put it in the fridge, it's the most refreshing thing on a hot day is to drink that. It was funny last night when I was puttering around, making sure I had everything ready for this podcast, I was thinking, yeah, I should probably do that thing where you, you take ACV and you mix it with honey and you put it on your counter for four hours and then you drink it and then you get this completely other thing that helps you sleep. Yeah. But I was thinking we got to keep this under five hours. So I, I just <laughs> capped it at what I thought I was talking about. <laughs> but we could have got into the whole apple cider vinegar and what bile is and how it works, but that would have been another 45 minutes. So Right. Well, and I didn't want to hijacked the whole podcast because you were geeking out and I was just totally following along going, wow, cool. It does all that too? <laughs> it does all that too. We could have just made this like a five minute podcast. Yeah. It's just good for your gallbladder. <laughs> there you go. Next week on Fusion Health Radio. <laughs> and as far as kombucha goes, I noticed that when I take it regularly, when I actually do make it, um, the times that I've made it and it's actually worked, um, meaning in my brewing process it worked uh, and I take it, I noticed my uh, fingers actually, um, like my cuticles and things look better. Which to me is just an indication that my gut's actually happier. Yeah, every, everything is everything, and this stuff can help a little bit with everything. Right. Uh, and for those of you out there, the ugly part of brewing kombucha is when you don't put the cheesecloth as good as you could over the top of the thing, and you open it up after it's sitting on your counter for 10 or so days, and you look, and there's this big slimy thing floating at the top of this brewed tea with a blob of green mold growing across the top of it. It's like, oh man, can I still take this? Dear internet, internet says no. no. A whole bunch of people said yes. No, I, no, yeah, yeah no. no. <laughs> Absolutely no. So that's a, that's a bit bit of a disappointment. So, um, but it's it's good, bad, and the ugly. I just quick quick story. Yep. Uh, two years ago, this was probably a year after I'd really started to find kombucha and what it was going to do for me. And uh, I mean, living where we do, there was lots of access to here. Try mine. Here, try mine. And now everyone who was saying here, try mine has their own kombucha company. But uh, a couple of years ago I was giving a talk and I was, had a small meal and I thought, okay, I've got to have something to sip on while I have this big talk. And I just grabbed some kombucha at the, the local health food store on my way to the office and the room fills up and I'm getting ready to do my talk and I'm sipping away at this stuff. And about 20 minutes into my talk, I'm like, oh my God, there's enough alcohol in there that I feel weird. Hmm. And long story, but I'm very sensitive to alcohol. And uh, it was so weird trying to like keep my mind on giving this two hour talk, you know, or at that point, 90 minutes left in the talk, thinking like, man, this is like stronger than beer. I've had like a half a bottle of kombucha and I feel like gross, hmm. you know, like that weird feeling where you're like, I'm not, I'm not okay, but I'm not happy. You're not drunk enough to not care about feeling gross. Well, it was only a half a thing, but whatever, you know, I'm not, maybe the company messed up in their distilling process or something, but I just remember going like, oh my God, that's, this is dangerous. Like you imagine driving down the road and having a sip of your healthy kombucha and then realizing, oh my God, I'm drinking alcohol. It's, it's like the, in, in, in doses that matter. Is store-bought kombucha, um, 
as I mean, if we're, if we're talking about taking this for medicinal purposes and taking a little bit at a time, is the stuff that you buy in the store decent? That was going to be my point. Uh, you're going to have to try because you don't know if it's going to have too much uh, of an imbalanced ratio of those primary uh, probiotic species. Because if it's way too many on the chem, candida side, not enough on the more uh, Sockbullardi side uh, or the Acidobacter side and, and things like that, uh, it could actually make your situation worse. And in fact, you know, kombucha has killed people. Wow. Right. So if there's a new company coming out, start with four ounces. That's your dose. Be really subjectively aware of how it's affecting your gut, your, your mindset. Uh, if it's too strong in a good way, it could also give you a drunken like feeling because it's killing off a lot of yeast babies. Mm-hmm. And maybe in the long term, maybe in the long term, that's going to stabilize things. But in the short term, the dose is too high. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we could probably go on for another hour with all, all of the other ways this can work. But with respect to the store-bought, make sure you can read the label. I would say if the label does not say maximum four ounces a day, even in the fine print, these people don't know what they're giving you, hmm. right? If it doesn't tell you how much caffeine, even as a percentage of a cup of coffee in there, you have no idea what your subjective state is going to be based on the stimulant of caffeine. It is going to have some alcohol in there. It's supposed to be commercially less than 0.3 to 0.5% uh, of total volume to be sold in a store instead of well, in Canada in you know, a liquor store. Although I think that's going to be changing. So you you don't really know. So I would say the more commercial and hip and cool it's looking, the likelihood in the sense of it being a really suddenly huge corporate uh, interest, um, they're more likely to actually want there to be more caffeine and alcohol in there so that people actually feel chemically state shifted, like sense of I'm, I'm altered. This is my favorite thing because humans are kind of like crack addicts. We love to know that we can control state shift, even if it's in a goofy way. Well, and I would say that they're impetuous as well, unless they actually see something happening, you know, right at, uh, at a moment's notice, they're not mm-hmm. going to think anything's happening, right? Yeah. Well, that's our, our short-term gratification and that's dangerous. And I don't spend time in liquor stores, but I have friends who say, Hey man, have you seen the new kombucha beer? And I'm like, uh, no, but great. kombucha alcohol. And what they're doing actually is adding malt liquor to a kombucha to not actually ferment the alcohol normally into the kombucha because that's tricky to do. It's a very quick runaway chemical process. So they they just take cheap beer additives, you know. That sounds absolutely disgusting. I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to know I will never probably swallow that stuff in my entire life. Wow. (laughs) That's so gross. Yeah. Um. I think there's probably more that we can uh, wax on around the whole idea of what kombucha and uh, apple cider vinegar is, but uh, I'm going to suggest that we end it here just because we're uh, long into this conversation and that if people wanted to know more uh, in terms of uh, apple cider vinegar and kombucha, there's tons of resources online. Certainly you can reach out to uh, Michael. Yeah, I wouldn't say, you know, then now that Anthony's moved in and I've finished my renovations and other things with the clinic, uh, hopefully we'll be back onto a... <clears throat> A consistent rhythm with doing this. I would love to know if you want to know if anything we've talked about, especially this episode, uh, touches your specific condition. And if it does say, yeah, this has really helped me. Or if you're not sure, say I have, you know, this weird polymyalgia thing, would this help? Cause it gives us a chance to interact with people because yeah, I mean, that, that's what this is inevitably meant to be is a conversation with, you know, a group of people who 
you know, are kind of following the, the momentum that, you know, Anthony I and I follow in our lives to, to stay healthy and keep learning. So yeah, for sure. The more you ask us, the more we can answer you and the more we can all feel like we're on the same page and going in the same direction. Uh, I would say too, that the, um, the, a couple of excellent resources that I found around, um, uh, kombucha and fermented foods and that sort of thing, uh, cultured food for life. If you Google that, there's a woman, uh, Donna, she has a website. Um, and she's always talking about, um, very respectful, mindful ways to take these different things. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, great, great resource. And, uh, she's in the States as well. So if you're looking to actually find out how to make stuff, she has kits and all oh, kinds wow. of things, right? Yeah. Nice. Including the little jars and neat things to help you out. Um, and, uh, just back to whatever Michael was saying, if you want to reach out and connect with us, a couple of ways you can do that, uh, through Facebook, uh, find Fusion, Fusion Health Radio there and, uh, fusionhealthradio at gmail.com and, uh, coming soon, real soon, you think real soon, the website? I would actually have to defer to you because as far as I know, we're only two paragraphs away from having it done. Okay. So real soon. Okay. Fusionhealthradio.com. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, was there anything we missed? Last bit of details there? No. I think we covered it. Uh, it took about 15 minutes longer than I thought, but we did get a little bit distracted there. So I am trying to restrain myself to one hour podcast. Yeah. We'll see what we can do uh, <laughs> over time. I just missed hanging out with you. So that we know. Yeah. Chat away. Uh, Fusion Health Radio. This has been uh, episode 60. How does apple cider vinegar and kombucha work? And I'm Anthony Santa. Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, we'll see you in the next podcast. Please share this with your friends. Yeah, we'd love to have them along for the ride. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.